This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to the Craft and Character Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you get better at the craft of communication. Whether you're a preacher, a teacher, or someone who is speaking to inspire a group of people, we want to help you. But we also want to be the kind of leaders and pastors and communicators where our character leads the way. So the way that this podcast works is we spend half the time dissecting and learning from a top-tier communicator, and then we spend the remaining half of the podcast learning from that person how they are ensuring that their character leads the way. I'm excited for today because we are joined by Pastor Rich Velotis, who leads New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. It is hands down one of the most diverse communities. And Rich has a book coming out this fall called The Deeply Formed Life. This guy is someone that people, that you all, that all, in my opinion, all of humanity just needs to to hear. And so I'm excited. Uh, We're going to be looking back at a teaching that he delivered when he returned from sabbatical uh, in September of 2019. And so take a moment, get to hear this clip, and then we'll dive into a conversation with Rich Velotis. Here's a little bit of theological math for you. If they spent eight hours a day with Jesus for 365 days a year over a three-year period, they would have spent 8,760 hours with Jesus. That's a lot of hours. That's a lot of hours. That many hours over a three-year period. And then you look at them in the Gospels. And with all the time that they spent with Jesus, they still had significant gaps in their lives. Now, for us, we come to church once a a week for an hour, hour and a half, and we think, I'm breathing just fine. When in actuality, over a three-year period, we might spend 150 hours in this kind of setting. Imagine the gaps that we have. Our lives are meant to be abiding with Jesus, to be praying in communion with him, because who we are meant to be is in direct proportion to how we behold God. And this is what I want to show you in this passage. That we become who we're meant to be when our lives are focused on beholding God. This is what David teaches us in Psalm 27. In Psalm 27, David shows us someone who is rooted, who is established, who is, who's building his life on communing and being with God in prayer. He begins by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. David begins this psalm, the first three verses, and it's a scene of warfare. There's a scene of battle. His enemies are surrounding him. They're encamping him. They're circling him. And yet, in the face of the enemies that are around him, David says these words, I will not fear. Don't you want that kind of life? The kind of life that when pressures are all around you, pressures at your job, pressures in your home, fears all around, that that all these things encamping against you and you're living without fear. I want that kind of life. And so David begins in the first three verses by giving us a picture of battle, giving us a picture of war, giving us a picture of the enemy encircling him. But David is, is, he is steadfast. He's at peace. Why? Because we see it in verse four. He transports us from the battlefield into an environment where he can behold God. He transitions to say, one thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. David goes from the battlefield to the temple. From the battlefield 
to the place of worship. And it is in this place of worship and this place of beholding God and all of God's beauty that David can live without fear. One thing have I desired. Well, I am honored to uh, have this chance to sit down with uh, Rich Velotis. I think, honestly, the guy is winning Twitter right now. If you don't follow him on Twitter, uh, you should, um, because the things that he's saying um, are profoundly relevant to uh, what is happening in the world. It's biblical. It's formational. Um, he just makes me think on another level. Uh, I really, really appreciate Rich for uh, many, many reasons. Um, he's got a a pretty good left-handed jump shot from what I've seen on some Instagram videos. Uh, but he is uh, the lead pastor at New Life Church in Queens. From my understanding, uh, it's one of the most diverse communities. And really, uh, I feel like Rich and you know his mentor and the person who was in the role before him, Pete Scazzaro, have really been... Uh, really kind of leaders in this crafting character space. And so, Rich, thanks so much just for uh, joining us on this podcast. I'm thrilled to dive in and really unpack a message you gave in September of last year. Well, thanks, Steve. It's so good to be here. And uh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. So this, is, this should be fun. Awesome. So you, uh, you returned from sabbatical in September. And if I remember right, you and Pete actually did a conversation, just maybe some learnings, but then the following week you gave uh, your first like real message back from, from sabbatical. Um, tell us a little bit about why this message and um, what the kind of the, the heartbeat of this talk was all about. Yeah, I came back from almost a four-month sabbatical being off of beyond just social media, uh, paying attention to my family and spent a lot of time in, in, in prayer and in reflection and monasteries. And I preached out of Psalm 27 as my return uh, text out of sabbatical. And for a number of reasons. One, uh, that passage has meant a lot to me. It was the first psalm that I memorized in its entirety because of uh, my grandfather telling me to do it. <laughs> and, um, but it's Psalm 27.4, which has become... Uh, a really important verse for my own life in following Jesus, where David says, one thing have I desired and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And then he says, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Uh, Maggie Ross has written, an Anglican theologian has written a book on silence. And her claim is that the word behold is the most important word in all of the Bible. And she does two books, two uh volumes on the on that one word behold and so that word has meant a lot to me beholding god and uh, and so i wanted to just talk about what it meant to behold god out of which we behold uh the world so that was the thrust of it i i loved it. it it was so rich and i loved even the backstory of you know your your grandfather you know teaching you how to memorize jesus wept and then he gave you psalm 27 and you were like oh okay and then watching you just kind of recite it but really focusing and honing in on on desire um, on behold, and then you went on a riff about breathing and talking about, you know, Henry now and just talking about the air that we breathe and really about prayer. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, now in talks about um, prayer being the means of our spiritual breath, that uh, if we are not connecting with God in prayer, we are not uh, spiritually breathing. And to the extent that we are in prayer, is to the extent that our life with God is really full, uh, in the in the best sense of that word, full, and uh, it's scary and frightening uh, because there are a lot of preachers who don't pray, uh, and a lot of just Christians who don't pray. And so, on the outside, we probably look, um, uh, you know, like we're doing all right, but on the inside, we're probably really suffocating. Uh, and so, when I look at beholding, beholding God as a means of being with God out of which the breath of God is able to really fill our spiritual lungs. So that, that's kind of the, the thrust of that connection. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I've always re respected about your um, messages is you pull from different streams, all, all grounded in, I think, would be truth and 
Um, but a lot of streams that sometimes people kind of wouldn't go down that path. You know, you even just mentioned Anglican or uh, even Henry Nowen, you know, for some people, which for me, it's that's not a problem. How do you, and this is one of the main things I wanted to connect about, how do you sift and sort through using uh, a resource like Maggie Ross or like using an Anglican um, theologian um, and yet this unique space that you're walking? I, I would imagine uh, that from time to time you get an email and you're like, wait, wait, do you understand what that person also said? How do you sift and sort uh, in, a, in a real way? Yeah, in terms of just who I draw from in terms of Christian tradition, uh, I have to remind our congregation and my predecessor, Pete, was, uh, did a great job doing this from time to time, that the church didn't begin with the Protestant Reformation. That's number one. Preach. There is a global historic church beyond what happened in Germany and such. Uh, and and so, uh, so that's number one. The church did not begin when Martin Luther uh, put on his 95 theses on, on, on the door of the church. Uh, so that's num- number one. But two, I mean, I, I, I like to read very broadly, and I read for truth and for God's truth. And I believe that all truth is God's truth. Obviously, I like to steer, stay within the Christian tradition uh, in terms of from the global historic perspective. But yeah, I mean, I remember in terms of John Stott, another you know, uh, well-known speaker and preacher and writer, and his book, Between Two Worlds, which is on preaching, he was quoting someone else. But uh, along the lines of uh, when, when I read the Bible or read generally, I don't read for sermons. I read for truth out of which sermons come. And I think too often in terms of our Bible reading or whatever devotional reading, we're, many preachers are reading for sermons as opposed to just reading for truth. And so for me, I'm, I'm trying to uh, – I realize my limited perspective, uh, Puerto Rican New Yorker, 41 years old, um, I have ver- I have a lot of blind spots. I have a lot of things that I don't see. So I need so many different voices to help me discern and and see God's truth from different perspectives. So that's that's essentially why I draw from so many different people uh, within you know church tradition and such. That's fantastic. Um, my mom's actually from Queens, and so like Flushing Meadows. So every time I you know I I love just the 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 Queens connection and. Um, but I, I, when you teach and, and oftentimes, you know, when you're in seminary or you, um, sit in a lot of, uh, churches or listen to a lot of messages, you see the pastor writing a message with the application in mind. And I don't, I'm not saying that you don't have application. I feel though that often a lot of your messages, you have the practice or the formation in mind. Talk about how you actually kind of construct or architect a talk. And maybe, maybe it starts with that se- the September one, a desiring one thing. But I- I'd, love to, I'd love to help people see because I think it's, it's different than what I understand taking place in a lot of contexts. Yeah. Uh, you'll rarely find me do much application in, this, in the classic sense of this is how you do it. Um, I, I think on a given... Sunday, there's a lot of information already uh, being handed down and people don't need every Sunday three or four more things to do. And so not that that's not important, but I don't necessarily lean there. But I do what I call bridge the sermon and bridge the text. And so for me, the bridge is how does this truth of scripture intersect with your current reality, uh, your current uh, experience, the current stage and season in life that you're in? And at the end of the day, in terms of application, most of my sermons, believe it or not, the application is uh, you need to be with God more and spend more time with God and behold God and behold scripture and be in Christian community and such. So that's just the application part. Um, In terms of how I, uh, in terms of structured, Steve, is that what you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I have, I would say 60% of the time, 60 to 65% of the time, I draw from Paul Scott Wilson's four pages of a sermon model. Uh, Now, uh, he wrote a couple of books on that. I have really simplified it and adapted it to make it my own. And so there's some part, but I I have found his framework to be great. And the four pages very simply is, uh, are 
you know, four different movements within the sermon. And so the first page is about what is the problem, the tension, the, 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 the area of our fallen condition uh, in the text. Page two is how does that now speak to our world? Page three, the third movement is where is God's grace, God's activity, God's presence being made known within this text or within the larger gospel story? And then page four is what does this mean for our particular life where, our, where God's grace, God's initiative, God's activity uh, is showing up. And so that, those four movements, which serve as the body of it, at the beginning, you know, I'm, I'm building rapport, I'm trying to tell a story, I'm trying to grab their attention. Uh, Eugene Lowry in his book, The Homiletical Plot, he talks about upsetting someone's equilibrium. I'm trying to upset their equilibrium at the beginning. Uh, so, you know, I'm trying to standard homiletical practice at the beginning where get your attention, uh, uh, name the tension, the, 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 the area of our fallen condition, kind of present what is the core truth that I want to now unpack, take us then into the scripture, set the stage, give us some context, contemporize the historical setting, and then take us into those four movements and then close with kind of a, you know, how do I exalt Jesus now in this moment? So that's, that's essentially uh, 60 to 65% of the time, that's what I'm doing. The other 40% of the time, I'm allowing the text to lead me. Yeah. So I don't have too much of a fixed structure. It's more inductive in that respect. That makes sense. I, I can actually see that in, in, in the way that you build and architect your talks. I, that makes total sense. Um, you know, one of the things that you use, that you use that word disrupt and, ten, and you use the word tension. And so sometimes when we talk about tension in communication, it's, you know, the tension between characters and the biblical story. What I appreciate about you is I do not feel like you are trying to shock me um, because there, there are people on Twitter who are trying to like just shock, you know, I actually think you're trying to form me, form me with the, asking the right questions. Um, and there's this old rabbi uh, who, who would say, you can only become somebody's rabbi to the degree that they'll let you disrupt them. And because often we, we want to sit in seats and listen to people who look like us, act like us, think like us, vote like us. But you, you have this unique ability to, and I'm not saying you, you like tension. I'm not saying you like disrupting people, but like it, you don't, you're, you don't shy away from it. But I, but again, you do it in a way that I don't feel like you're trying to shock someone, but you're trying to. I don't know, unearth something. Can can you talk about that? Because it's it's unique with you, man. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Steve. I mean, at, at the core of it, um, I would like to think, and I think uh, various sermons it, it 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 differs from in varying degrees depending on what I'm preaching on. But that disruption, uh, the the uh, the thrust of helping people to look within and to identify points of healing that are necessary. I like to think that it's coming from my own compassionate self-confrontation uh, where I am trying to wrestle with my own uh, uh, tensions, wrestle with my own areas where I need healing. And so I, I think um, uh, sharing to some degree my own brokenness, uh, not something, hey, 10 years ago I was struggling with this, but doing it in a way where my daily reality, I am trying to battle against particular things. And so if I can now um, confess certain things, now it gives people an opportunity. I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, um, I preached on, um, you know, what was happening in our world regarding you know, racial tensions and such. And I was preaching on Philippians 3, uh, where Paul is talking about beware of the dogs, beware of the mutilators of the flesh, beware of evildoers, talking about the Judaizer, uh, Judaizers who were coming in and essentially trying to make people into their own cultural, ethnic, you know, standard and such. And I use that as a, as a framework to talk about race. But I did it in this way where I wanted to let people know that I have been socialized in a particular way to see black people in particular 
to see everyone, but I wanted to focus on black people uh, in this particular sermon. And uh, me being able to say, this is how I've been socialized to see black people. Uh, if I can do that now, it gives a lot of permission for the people I talk to. Uh, you know, I think it was Anne Lamott who said um, that the best sermon that could ever be given is me too. That yep. the preacher gets up and says, yeah, that's, this is not something that uh, I've overcome and I, I don't have any problems at all and be like me in that respect. So I think I want to help people wrestle with the tensions and the disruptions, but my hope is that it's coming out of my own life. Pete really taught me that about how is this text passing through my life first. And um, so, I, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the hope of what I'm trying to do. No, that's so good. And, and you know, the, the, the way that you're able to almost break yourself open, pour yourself out, but then also kind of address those cultural strongholds so in that Pentecost message, you had a picture of cars on fire and you were talking about the Pentecost fire, you know, and again, just it, it's, it's almost this way of turning and letting someone see what this symbol can mean in new and fresh ways. Um, talk about that. How, how, you know, is, do you like go for walks in Queens? Do you, do you like, how do you marinate to a point where you can have that um, compassionate self-confrontation with yourself, but with the strongholds uh, that are, you know, uh, taking place right around you and address them, whether in 240 characters on a tweet or from a stage in a very diverse context? Yeah. Well, I mean, my, my definition in terms of First, in terms of like the walks and such, I, I do um, a lot of walks. I go on some walks in the neighborhood. I think best when I'm walking. Uh, but for me, I think um, I'm always thinking, I'm always trying to figure out how can I serve the people that I lead uh, to. And metaphor is really important. So I'm always thinking about metaphor. I'm always thinking in terms of analogy. I'm always thinking in terms of story and such. So that's something that's always going through my mind, metaphor, analogy, story. I'm always thinking about that, filing them away. Uh, in terms of like, how do I go from, you know, compassionate self-confrontation to now offering a word that I believe is from God? I mean, my definite, my personal definition of preaching is that preaching is this priestly and prophetic act of proclaiming the kingdom of God uh, and artfully, passionately, responsibly through our lived experience and unique personality in a contextual manner for the glory of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my definition of preaching. Uh, I love that definition, man. That's powerful. It's a nice run on sentence. Carl <laughs> Bart will be happy uh, with that <laughs> sentence. Uh, but, uh, but it's a, a priestly and prophetic act of proclamation. And it is that priestly of comfort, tender, but then there's times when that prophetic act of uh, speaking truth to power, speaking, you know, I say at our church all the time, we should have a sign in front of our building that says, enter at your own risk. Because <laughs> in our preaching and in our formation, we're going to invite you to go places you typically don't go. But I think if it's coming out of a place of my own self-confrontation, um, I personally feel like I have greater integrity to say these things because I've wrestled with my own inner demons. Uh, and I'm trying to offer a word out of that. Now, that's fantastic. Now, do you ever feel that you have, you know, in that prophetic, because the prophetic is obviously a step a two, or two or a mile out ahead. Do you ever feel like there's been times where pushback has come, where people are like, no, we want the priestly and pastoral. Uh, rich, not the, not the prophetic rich. Yeah. And how do you deal with that? Yeah. I, the, I get emails really when I talk about two things, when I mentioned talk about racism or I talk about cats. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> those, those are the two. I, I'm a dog lover. So I've dissed a couple of cats in my lifetime and uh, I've gotten some emails, you know, all, you know, all pets matter sort of a thing, you know, uh, but, uh, but also the, the, it's the race piece, the racism, and, but when I've talked about racism on structural, systemic, institutional uh, ways, um, I've gotten a lot of pushback. 
Uh, now, our congregation, 75 nations represented, but I always have to do the good work of redefining racism. But I remember uh, three, uh, 2017, I, I preached a message on individual racial prejudice, and then I preached a message on institutional racism. When I preached on individual racial prejudice, the entire congregation loved me. They were like, wow, you know, this is fantastic. When I preached about institutional racism uh, and talked about the genogram of the United States being marked by white normativity, white supremacy and such, I got a lot of emails. Uh, and granted, I was a bit flippant with some language that I used, which I think uh, hurt me and I've learned a lot from that actually. Um, but uh, absolutely, whenever I talk about race and talk about power and whenever certain people are isolated, um, I'm going to, I, I, so I've certainly gotten my share of emails without yeah. question. Well, I think those, that, th that was the series that, um, made me aware of you. Now I, I had known about you because of the handoff, uh, between, uh, Pete and I watched that service, which I still think is one of the best succession services. It being a, almost like kind of cast as a wedding. And it was, I mean, this, the ceremonial feel of it was, Wow, this this is this is deep, and you could tell it wasn't just someone handing a baton and and leaving. This was um, this was a, a covenant. This was a commitment. It was beautiful. So I knew of you there. Then I listened to those two talks, and I was like, I like this guy, and I wonder if it's gonna work out. <laughs> you know, so because because I just but but I think what was so amazing though has been, uh you've been consistent. And, and again, I think there is this connection between the formational and the prophetic, where oftentimes, again, I think people are saying things, um, and they might be a lot of it true, but I don't know the practices. I don't know the ways that they are beholding the Lord's presence. Um, and that's something I just, from the outside, I go, I trust this guy. Like I trust the work that he's doing. I trust the words that he's saying. I trust his exegesis. Like there is, you've just done the work. Well, I, I think my hope is that uh, kind of my, in terms of formation and preaching uh, in Galatians four, Paul talks about um, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And that's for me. And then he goes on right after that to say, but you wouldn't want anything of this, you know? Uh, <laughs> but I think that that one part of that verse has become my verse regarding, that's kind of like my preaching verse. I'm in the pain of childbirth, the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And so whatever I speak, my hope is that with integrity, my goal is not just to say certain things that rile people up or whatever. I want Christ formed in the people that I lead. And um, it's going to be, sometimes the words are going to be feel harsh and difficult, sometimes very soothing and comforting. Uh, but the end goal for me is not just uh, a statement, a declaration of something. It's Christ being formed in people. Love it. Um, that's my ultimate goal. Yeah. And, and I feel that. I feel that listening to you. And, and again, that's, the, that's you, you just see it. And I think that just oozes out. Um, but again, I think it gives more like gravitas, like weight uh, to those moments where that prophetic vision is coming out of what, what, what it means to be a disciple and apprentice of Jesus. Um, you know, this, this, this podcast, you know, it, it, it's all about that kind of intersection between craft and character. And again, I, I want to end the, the craft conversation because, you know, You've got a, an, a little old school like music stand typically up when I see you, um, you know, and from the shot of when I'm watching, you know, online, um, you're kind of like moving around on the stage. Um, I've never been to New Life to, to kind of see it in, in, in the flesh. Um, I haven't ex I haven't entered at my own risk yet. Um, someday I will. Um, but like w when you are you, you move a lot um, and you know, you alluded to, I, I think best when I'm walking two questions. One, what is on your music stand? And then two, how much 
is mapped with those like four pages in your brain and how much is scripted of the talk that you're going to deliver, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, every Sunday I preach, and I preach about uh, 35 to 37. We have a, a preaching team. So that's how many Sundays I preach a year, 35 to 37. Um, I, I write anywhere between 2,000 to 2,500 words. I manuscript everything. Okay. So every, uh, I would say 90% of it, I have spent time writing the sermon. I want every word to count. And so when I go up there, I go up there with that entire manuscript. Okay. Um, now, the hope is that I have done good internalization where I, rec- I remember the movements. Um, I've internalized exactly what I want to say. But in that moment, I think because I have uh, been so specific with my words, I, it, it, it allows me to some space for spontaneity as well. Yeah. And so what, when, I, when I step away, it's often the case when I step away from, uh, from the platform, for the, from that music stand, uh, there's a portion in there where I just put like in parentheses, preach here. <laughs> by that I mean, uh, I'm going to now, in that moment, I'm, I, don't, I don't have anything prepared prior to that. But as I see the congregation and their response and what I sense God pulling out of me through that interchange of call and response with the congregation, I'm now going to, in the moment, kind of freestyle. Now, there's a few moments within the sermon, but for the most part, I write down every sentence with that level of precision. Uh, and then I hope that I can just be aware of what the Spirit is trying to say in that particular moment. So that's what I, that's, that's what I take up with me every, every single Sunday. Now, when you do that, because I love that, I, I often um, will tell you know, emerging voices, the more prepared that you are, the more freedom you give to the Holy Spirit to move. So just be ready. If you feel, if, you're, if your head is on your notes, you're missing out on what God's doing in the room. I like that you have moments where you say, preach here. Do you ever find that, and maybe percentage-wise, that you go, hey, between services, it's the same, maybe not the same words, but it's the same idea of what I'm preaching? Or do you often find, like, I've got, a couple different congregations, um, you know, and one congregation shows up at their first service, another congregation shows up. So sometimes that preach here, I feel like the spirit whispers a different message for that one. Does that happen for you often? It happens often because uh, at the end of services, I'm greeting people in the lobby, I'm shaking hands, I'm in conversation. And so I'm doing that after each service for about 15, 20 minutes. And as I am greeting congregants in the lobby, which is something I can't wait to do again. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one of my favorite things about just gathering together as a church. I hear hey, pastor, this resonated because of this, or I hear, you know, it reminded me of this, or have you thought about saying it this way? And so the congregation is a gift because the congregation has helped me preach better. Yes. Uh, and, and for me, the congregation is a gift in helping me. So opening myself, there's a lot of pastors that don't go to the lobby to talk to the congregation, go to wherever, the green room, what have you. I want to talk to people, number one, because I want to see people. These are the people that I love and I want to embrace. But I also find some of the best preaching insights from them. Uh, so between the first and second service, uh, you know, it's often the case sometimes it's not a lot, but maybe 10% of the sermon has adjusted because of what I've heard. Yes. And you know what? I want to make sure I highlight that because I think that the next, and in our case, which is why I think every church should have at least two services, give that pastor, give that preacher two opportunities to deliver yeah. it <laughs> uh, because you work so hard. You preach it one time. I mean, yes. give that preacher one more time. I don't care if five people show up, get, yep. have two services, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that, I, don't you feel like that's one of the hardest parts right now, even in COVID is it's like one teach. It feels like, you know, for many people and they're just filming it and then it's done and it's replaying four times. But you're doing something different, right? I'm doing something different in that, uh, thankfully, in New York, we own our building. So we're able to go into the church and, and preach from you know, our sanctuary. 
So we have a 1030 service, but at 930, I preach that same message to the 10 people who are in the sanctuary. And immediately right after I say amen, um, I say, okay, now, um, and I tell them, listen with one ear for you and listen with one ear for me. And for 15, 20 minutes, they're not giving me feedback to help me strengthen the message so that when I preach it at 1030. So I would not go up without first preaching it somewhere. I'll find a place to preach yes. it yes. before I preach it for the first time because I, I just need that feedback. And it's the smallest points of feedback that often make the biggest difference in delivering a sermon. I, I think this is what I, again, absolutely appreciate about you um, and the great communicators. I mean, sometimes we watch online and they go, gosh, they're just, I mean, the way that they string sentences together, they're so good. You don't see when just 10 people are in the room, you don't see the dedication, the hard work, the opening yourself up to how can I make it better? How can I serve my people better? How can I shepherd them towards this prophetic word? How can I help them? And again, just um, as one person who loves your teaching, but two, as someone who appreciates the craft, I love the effort, you know, and it, it reminds me of Paul speaking to Timothy in, in verse, in chapter four, where he just says, um, be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them. When he's talking about Timothy exercising his spiritual gifts of teaching, and he goes, let everyone see your progress. And, and oftentimes, I think our diligence might be in our, our study, and our diligence might be um, in the auditorium, but there's a massive gap. And I just, I just love your diligence to say, for the sake of my people, I want to do this. Thank you for that, man. Yeah. It's not easy. I mean, you preach, and then two minutes later, they're going, well, that story didn't work. And when you said that, I was confused. <laughs> and I'm going, man, this, I just, you know, I just, I, it's a very vulnerable moment. Totally, totally. But I think uh, it, it's made me into a, a better preacher over the years. For sure, for sure. Well, uh, you know, the second part of the, the, the podcast centers around the character. And um, again, with what new life has been about. And, you know, I remember, gosh, I think it must have been 2000, 2001, maybe. I was at a church in Michigan, Mars Hill, and, and you know, Pastor Pete Scazzaro came out and began to kind of talk to our staff about um, emotional health. And I was like, what? I had never heard about this. And then, you know, new phrases like daily office and just things I had never heard about in my stream of growing up and, and what I was taught. Um, but I know for you, you've got a book coming out called the, you know, the deeply formed life formation is no joke for you. I mean, this is like everything. Talk about your entrance into that conversation, into that stream and why, why it's so important for pastors, shepherds to be formed in this kind of way? Yeah. Well, one is uh, it, the reason why it's so important is, uh, you know, I think of preaching, first of all, is not about preaching. Preaching is about a life with God, a life of integrity out of which we speak. Yes. And it's often the case that the, the emphasis, the thrust on preaching is on tactics and structure and delivery and such. But um, you know, Acts 3, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus, get up. Um, I can only, I can't give what I don't have. Mm. And so formation is about finding ourselves um, absorbed in God for the sake of now giving that out. I mean, uh, Robert Mulholland, he wrote a book on spiritual formation, and he makes a distinction between, and it's a nice turn, on, turn of phrase where he says, there's a difference between being in the world for God and as opposed to being in God for the world. Mm. Big difference. Yes. There's being in the world for God and then being in God for the world. I want to be in God for the world. And because there's, because you can be in the world for God and not have a relationship with God. I want to be in God for the world. So for me, formation is about what am I offering? You know, I think of Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas, his definition of preaching is about contemplating and sharing the fruit of one's contemplation. And Aquinas, the language is, you know, Dominican preacher, 
you know, preaching is beholding God, the Psalm 27, four, and then out of that, making a 180 turn, looking at the congregation and saying, would you like some of that? Wow. And uh, we preach often from our exegesis. We preach often from our theological uh, sensibilities. We often don't preach from a deep life in God. And I think what our congregation needs is not just good exegesis. I love exegesis. They need someone who's, who knows God and who's going to offer a word from God to the people. And so when I think about like a deeply formed preacher, you know, I have in mind layers of beholding back to that word and, you know, beholding God, beholding uh, scripture, beholding the depths of oneself and beholding the complexity of the human condition. So as to offer, you know, a Christ saturated word in the power of the spirit, but is those four, that fourfold beholding, Beholding God, beholding scripture, beholding the, the, the depths of myself and beholding the complexity of the world. Uh, that's the kind of preaching I want to offer, but that takes time, energy. And, but for me, preaching is about giving out of who I am, not giving out of my ability to find clever clues or uh, uh, angles on particular texts that I haven't seen before. So that's the thrust for me. It's beautiful. I, and I think there's so many people who are really, really gifted at transferring information, but struggle to s- preach from a transformed place. And I, and I hear you just that wrestling. When you've got 35 to 37 ups, uh, uh, you know, to, to get up and, and really uh, be in God for the world, for uh, your congregation, and yet you're also a lead pastor— and you've got responsibilities, and you've got budgets, and you've got, and you're, and you're married, your father. Um, oftentimes, it feels like some of the first things to go for communicators are the times to behold God and the times to behold Scripture in prep for being in God for the sake of the world. How do you protect that? You know, well, I want to just say it's not easy. Uh, lots of different forces, lots of different um, responsibilities, as you mentioned. There was a shift for me very early on in my pastorate. And uh, Pete, again, my predecessor mentor, was really helpful in reshaping and reprioritizing my, my job description. And so towards the end of Pete's tenure, as the lead pastor at New Life. And as I was jumping in, we, we, we co kind of wrote or rewrote my job description. And after some conversation, Pete's recommendation, so this is not me, this is Pete's recommendation that I've now given to the rest of my staff, that my number one job description is to be a contemplative, uh, to behold the beauty of God. That's, that's what's written on my job description. Wow. To be a contemplative, to behold God. So there was something about formalizing it in that way, where if anything is going to um, be compromised, let it be something else, not my life with God. Uh, and so uh, that's meant a lot of, there's a lot of practical outworkings of that. You know, we're in a pandemic now, staying at home. Uh, you know, I've had to negotiate with my wife, clarify expectations with her about, how much time do I need to be with God? I have a 10-year-old and a 5-year-old. Uh, you know, what does she need? So, the, I mean, so it's very complicated. But I think that shift for me of my primary job description, a primary job in my job description is to behold God, to be a contemplative out of which I offer my leadership, my preaching, whatever it is to the world. So um, that's kind of theoretical though, Steve. I mean, very practically uh, you know, I realize that I need a rhythm of prayer. It's one of the reasons why on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I lead a midday prayer on Instagram and Facebook for, it was for our congregation initially and folks from around the country have joined now. But I just realized I need a community of people who are going to help me to behold God. Yeah, That's the gift of, mon- of monasticism where uh, I go to a monastery every year in the Boston area and they're gathering together to pray 
according to fixed hours, you know, whether it's 6 p.m., 3 a.m., 6 a.m., 9 a.m., whatever it is, I just know I need people to help me on that journey. But the, the, uh, the, the, the takeaway here is that's my most important job, to behold God. Not in some form of, and, and you know what? It's harder to do that than to lead a staff meeting. It's, I mean, I, I've had, sometimes I'd rather just lead a staff meeting and do all that other easy stuff. But to behold God is really the hard work. You know, it, it, that's, that's so true. I mean, there's, I, I think to, to sit in the seasons of waiting, um, to um, listen uh, when your mind wants to, to go and do a thousand other things. Um, when I think often about metrics in the local church, you know, you, you hear about budgets and, and tithing and attendance, but when your job description is, you know, you, you are the chief contemplation officer, you know, <laughs> like you, you are the contemplative um, voice. How, how do the elders um, actually go, Rich, we think you're doing a great job with that. Um, wh- what's the fruit of that that they're able to measure uh, that kind of job description or do they? Yeah. Um, you know, every, it's hard. These things are hard to measure, but every month when I meet with our board, you know, I give them my own report. And part of that report is just how my soul is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how my rhythms, uh, and so, uh, so that's fixed within our own, uh, how we organize and how do we try to maintain some support for me from the elders perspective. Uh, so it's hard to measure, but I mean, the hope is that our relationship is built on trust and I'm able to say, you know what, I, I've been really struggling this month with X, Y, Z, and I haven't been in these rhythms uh, as much as I want. So uh, that's hard to measure. But I, I also think the, the measure of, of prayer and being with God, number one is love uh, and, and wisdom. And, and I think uh, even as we've been in this pandemic, I, I, I have tried to spend some significant time with God in prayer and in reflection so that I could offer words of prudence and love of how is our congregation going to respond. And so in, to some degree, I think um, the measure of it is in love uh, and in prudence and wisdom and such. But yeah, it's just a hard thing to, um, to measure. The hope is that when I know I'm struggling and there have been you know, months in this pandemic where I've said, you know what, I'm just so fatigued. I have not spent the time with God that I really want that I'm able just to name that to them. Right. And, and you know, hear their words of encouragement and words of affirmation and um, you know, exhortation and such. So uh, yeah, that's how it's worked with our elders though. Yeah, no, that's 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 really helpful, you know, because it and I and I see why so many people just kind of um, pick up on the few things of baptisms, how many people in small groups. I mean, it's just so much easier to measure, but to have that kind of trust, ha- I quantify the love, be really in tune and honest, and and again, just as a a, a mirror reflecting back to you. There's been a couple moments for me. You know, um, you posted something in the middle of, of the, you know, probably six, seven weeks into the COVID crisis, and and you even alluded to it just a second ago that made me that reminded me of it. But how much you missed the lobby, how much you missed your people, and just how how you you know, as a pastor, um, you you don't just write messages, you know, and it was so good to see your heart, you know what I mean, um, because. Obviously, I, I respect you and think the world of your communication, but to see that pastoral side, you know, and I could just see, gosh, this is this this is taking a toll, you know, on on those people, <clears throat> excuse me, who who constantly live in the lobby, who want to break themselves open and pour themselves out for their people, and and so I just I I I appreciate that, and and you use this word rhythms. You know, um, and that seems to be really in that new life um, vernacular. Um, and even that message we looked at, you came off a four-month sabbatical. Talk about the rhythms. Talk about Sabbath, um, and and why why that is important um, for today's obviously disciple, Christ follower, but especially for today's preacher. 
Yeah, you know, when I think about rhythms, uh, and first of all, I, I just think about Jesus and the rhythms that Jesus kept, uh, and the the role of pastoring, the role of preaching, the role of leading a congregation. Uh, it's exhausting. There's so much coming uh, at a pastor in a given day, uh, and so learning how to uh, rhythms are for the sake of longevity and sustainability. And so when I talk about Sabbath, you know, I remember in my, my first interview with Pete when I was 2008 and I was about to come on staff and he interviewed me and, uh, you know, we're eating French fries and grilled cheese sandwiches at the local diner in Queens. And he says to me, we're having a good conversation. And he says, Rich, do you know the only way you'll get fired here? And so I kind of like put the French fry down and sat up a little straighter and he said, the only way you'll get fired here is if you don't keep Sabbath. And I, was, and I thought he was going to say, if you don't work hard, you're going to get fired. He says, if you don't keep Sabbath. And he says, because if you don't keep Sabbath, you won't have the kind of life to sustain the work that you're going to be doing. And so that was my introduction to New Life Fellowship Church. Uh, at that diner with French fry in my mouth and Pete telling me, you know, the threat of, of being fired. So from there, the rhythms of, you know, Henry Nouwen talks about having a ministry of presence and a ministry of absence, that pastors in particular need both ministries. We need, we need to be with our people. We need to be with them in crisis. We need to be calling them during COVID-19 and making hospital visits, whatever it is, training, et cetera. But then we need a ministry of absence. And Nowen says, it's often the case that it's only when we leave that the spirit can come. And I think there's not just for me, but for our congregation as well. And I think there's a lot of truth there. So I have tried to create that rhythm of where am I truly needed? Where's my presence truly needed? And then what are the rhythms of absence? And so whether it's a weekly Sabbath, whether it's every seven years I'm getting a sabbatical, whether it's taking a, you know, a month off in the summertime to be with my family, um, whether it's uh, pulling away for a, a midday prayer because I need to get away from these people so I can get to God and kind of uh, get recentered. Uh, the rhythms are, this is not balance. I think balance is an illusion, but I think rhythm is really about sustainability and longevity. And I think we see that over and over with Jesus where he's preaching healing and he's going away, comes back, preaching healing, going away, coming back. And I think that's what, was, that's what enabled Jesus, even with all the demands on his life, to, uh, to live a life that was you know, faithful to the Father. That's so beautiful, man. I, I, I think um, anybody who spent time with Scazzaro has like one of those stories. You know, <laughs> I, he... he uh, he spoke in Grand Rapids uh, when I was a pastor. I was a young pastor, you know, I must have been my early, mid-20s. And I, had, I got the privilege to drive him from Grand Rapids to Holland, which is about 35 minutes. And I'm, I'm driving him and, you know, he, he and his, you know, kind of New York ways, asking me some questions. It, you don't know if, at first if he's mad at me or if he likes me, you know. But I, I, for my mom, I, I get it. And, um, and then he asks me, about my work, like my, my rhythm, but I don't have this language. I don't know, but, he, but he senses something and I'm on the freeway in a Honda civic and he goes, pull the car over. And I'm like, what? Pull the car over. And I'm like, okay. And I, I honestly, I'm like, maybe let's use the restroom. I have no idea what's going on. I pull the car over and he looks at me and goes, what's your anniversary? And I'm like, um, March 6th. Um, 2004, he's like, who'd you marry? And I'm like, Sarah. He goes, that's right. You didn't marry Mars Hill. You didn't mar marry your position. And when you get to heaven, and he literally, semi-trucks are going by me. The Civic is shaking. And he's saying, he's like, you're addicted to your work. You're finding your identity in what you do. And my friend, and he just says, my friend, you need the Sabbath. And then he goes, now take me to Holland. And I was like, what in the world? So she tell me that I'm like, I, I have my own French fry experience at a Honda Civic, you know? And, and yet I, he's right. He was right. 
hey, I, I want to end with this. And and I, I, I've told you this. I am really, really expectant for uh, your book. And again, just because um, I think you're one of those people who say what they mean and mean what they say. Um, I love the cover. I love the title, A Deeply Formed Life. Can you just uh, spend a few moments? I, I know it doesn't come out for a couple months, but can you just spend a few moments, share the heartbeat of that, and um, there will be links for people to, to, to go and get it in the show notes. But I... I I just want people to hear this because I, I'm believing I'm like speaking this into existence that this is going to be like one of the most important books for 2020. Um, but, but share about why you felt compelled to write this. Yeah. Uh, a couple of things, uh, you know, deeply formed life, five transformative values to root us in the way of Jesus. And uh, first of all, it comes out of the life of our local church. So um, the, those five values that I write, are the values that have shaped new life for many years. Uh, and those values are at new life. We, we call them our five M's. I don't use that same language for, for the book, but it's the, our monastic value, our multiracial value, our emotional health value, our marriage to Christ value and our missional value. In the book, I, I call the values, uh, you know, contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness and missional presence. And so, first of all, it's coming out of the life of our local congregation. I have seen people's lives deepened, impacted, changed by these values and living them out. Uh, and so that's where it really came out of. And these values have, uh, you know, uh, profoundly impacted my own life as a follower of Christ. What I was trying to do and what I'm attempting to do is broaden the language of spiritual formation. And I'm trying to look at these core, these five areas, which I think uh, serves as a paradigm to, for the future of the church, that if we can faithfully focus on these five areas, not that there's nothing else, but I'm talking about, uh, you know, contemplative rhythms for an exhausted world, a world that's exhausted, racial reconciliation for a divided society. I mean, need, do I have to talk more about that, you know? Uh, interior examination for a world living on the surface, uh, so many people who are uh, so unaware of what's happening deep within sexual wholeness for a culture that splits bodies from souls, where we don't see this sacramental way of living in the world where our bodies, our, our spirituality and our sexuality are actually connected together. And then missional presence for a consumer disengaged society. Uh, for me, if we could look at those five areas holistically and say, this is the spiritual formation uh, you know, vision before us because spiritual formation is often, you know, what are the disciplines? What's, you know, the prayer, this, which I'm all for, but how do we now address race? Yes. And justice. Yes. And interior examination from a spirit and sexual whole from a spiritual formation lens. So I'm trying to broaden what spiritual formation is, uh, trying to give a, a, theo a, a theological vision, but also for each of those chapters, uh, in each of those values, there's two chapters. One chapter, which is a theological vision of what I'm trying to accomplish. And the other chapter are what are the various practices to live into this? So it's very accessible. I think it's very intuitive, but it is theologically informed, uh, biblically informed, biblically shaped. Uh, so it comes out of our church. I've been formed by it. And I think the larger project is I'm trying to write about spiritual formation, not from a monastery, not from a mountaintop, but from the subway <laughs> yes, the city. Yes, yes, yes. The city that never sleeps uh, in an urban environment, and I'm saying these things can be done. Gosh, I love that. You know, and it makes me think of, um, often when I think about spiritual formation, I think of the contemplative activist, you know? And in my active life, it brings me back to the deeper contemplative practices. And if I'm doing the practices well, it's gonna engage me with, the strongholds and um, the realities of this day. And I think this book is addressing it's, you know, in Esther language is for such a time as this. So Rich, thank you. I am so thrilled uh, that you are on this podcast. I believe in you. I'm grateful for you. And uh, just pray God's continued favor on you, this book and New Life Fellowship. Thanks for joining us, man. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Awesome. Thanks so much for tuning into the Craft and Character podcast. I don't know about you, but I was so deeply inspired by the words 
the work and the wisdom of Rich Velotis. And I'm telling you what, I am so expectant about this book, The Deeply Formed Life. So do yourself a favor, wherever you go to buy books, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, wherever it is, hey, go pre-order that book. And if you want to learn more about what we're up to at Craft and Character, just go to www.craftandcharacter.org. There's some incredible content, ways in which we want to help you take the next step in developing your craft, but ensuring that your character always leads the way. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Seriously, you can subscribe, you can rate, you can review, you can uh, let us know on Twitter. It's simple. It's at craft underscore underscore character and on Instagram at craft and character. So feel free, reach out. You can always email me at steveryancarter.com. But just know this, I'm rooting for you. I'm cheering you on. I'm praying for you that we would be the kind of people who not only just give inspiring messages, but live such inspired lives because of how deep we go with Christ. Much love, grace, and peace.